Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the New Testament, the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are going to spend the Sundays of November in the book of Philippians, and uh, today we'll consider chapter 2. We'll read uh, the entire chapter and focus most of our attention on the first half. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as the drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. That's not a name that I've known outside of the Bible. I've never known a person who named their son Epaphroditus. Maybe you have. You could talk to me later. I'm not recommending that, by the way. Just basically on the the level of culture. But it is a wonderful name. And this is a wonderful man. But I'm not recommending you name your child Epaphroditus. My brother, he said, 
and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The exhortation of the apostle is that we would be like Christ, that we would have the mind of Christ. We'll see that plainly momentarily. The problem, of course, is that none of us does have the mind of Christ perfectly. Though this is our goal, and this is our standard, and this is the objective of our lives, none of us achieve it. But it doesn't stop us from striving for it. Neither does it stop us from cheering one another toward it. And neither does it stop us from holding each other accountable when we don't achieve it. We do not serve one another well if we get sloppy toward this objective. If things get loose in our personal lives, someone needs to come alongside and say, what's going on? If things get sloppy in the church as regards to the things of Christ and the exhortation to follow Christ, somebody needs to stand up and speak out and say, this is not the way of Christ. Because this is of the highest importance. Consider the last two verses of the previous chapter, verse, uh, rather chapter, tw- uh, chapter 1, verses 28 and 9 and 30. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, the apostle is writing to this church that he loves dearly and saying to them, it's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be soft, kind, cuddly. You are living in a world that is not like you. You are to be an influencer in that world. You're to be a witness in that world. But you are not ever to expect that somehow the world is going to follow you in mass. Instead, quite to the contrary, verse 29, it has been granted to you that you should not only come to Christ, believe in him, but that you should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict. But note that his exhortation, as we shall see plainly here in chapter 2, His exhortation is that that conflict should be outside of the church, not inside of the church. A church in conflict is not the will of God. So I urge you to consider these words in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. 
They are some of the most precious in the New Testament, as we shall see. So I want to consider with you just three things. We're going to look at the first little paragraph, verses 1 to 4, and then the second, 5 to 11, and then the third, beginning in chapter 2, verse 12. First of all, I want you to note that, the, that unity of mind, unity of mind produces joy and com- comfort. Uh, I will remind you that I've said before many times, and I said as late as last week, that the goal of God is unity, not uniformity. We are not the same. We don't have to be the same. In fact, it's ridiculous to assume that we would ever be the same. There are people here who like white meat, and there are people here who like dark meat. There are people here who don't eat pork. There are people here who don't eat meat. There are people here who like what you like, and there are people here who don't like what you like. There are people here who came from where you came from, and there are people here who have no intention of ever being identified with where you came from. There are people here who like your politics. There are people here who don't like your politics. There are people here who like your football team, people here who don't like your football team. We are not the same. We are not uniform. There are people here from America. There are people here not from America. We're not the same. And that is exactly the way it should be. The notion that somehow we should all be one big glob of identical people is not, it's just not right. It's just not biblical. It's not true. Instead, what God ordains is that his church would be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every skin tone, and that we would all gather together pursuing Christ together. And we would show the world that though the world wants to impose these differences and say, you can't get along with him because he's not like you, we want to show them that what drives us is not those things that are external about us, but those things that are internal about us. We have the same mind. We have the same hope. We have the same goal. We have the same identity. We are one in Christ. And it is Christ that binds us together. And this unity of mind, as we see here in these opening verses, produces joy. Think again of your family. Let's assume for the sake of conversation, you've got a lot of children. Let's, well, just enough. Just enough to have some diversity. Okay, so you've got, you got a child who talks a lot. You've got a child that doesn't talk a lot. How does that go? How does that work out? Sometimes it goes just wonderful. Sometimes it doesn't. You got a child who's, who's uh, pouty. You got a child who's chronically not pouty and doesn't like pouty brother or pouty sister. You got two sisters. They don't enjoy one another. What does that do to your family gatherings? I'll tell you what it does. It poisons it. It ruins it. You can't have a family where people, uh, you can't have a joyful family, say that differently, you can't, have, you can't have a joyful family where people are not pulling in the same direction, where people are not uh, identifying as one. But if there is a priority here and a priority over there, then which priority is going to take priority? The answer is we're going to fight about it to determine and win or take all. And that's not a way to build a family, and it's certainly not a way to build a church. That's not the notion of the Scripture. That's not what God is doing. Instead, God is saying, I want you to experience the fullness of comfort 
And that fullness is bound up in your singular identity with Christ. We are one in Christ. And because of that, all these other things fall away. These things don't matter. These things don't define us. We know they exist, but we, we smile, we love, we're kind, we're patient, we're long-suffering. We know that God is working, and he's working in him and her and them and those, and he's doing it in a way that maybe we wouldn't do it, but he's doing it in a way that would bring glory to him. Read again with me verses 1 and following. So there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, there's four clauses here, encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. You'll notice he begins with that little preposition, if. Now in English, when we normally use the word if, we mean that maybe these things aren't true. We're expressing doubt. But in the language of the Bible, it's possible to say if and not mean what we mean by if. This is actually a construction that suggests more akin to the word since. Or maybe use the word if like this. If the sun comes up in the east tomorrow, I would ask you, what are the chances of that not happening? Well, let me tell you something, friend. If the sun doesn't come up in the east tomorrow, you need to go to your bunker. If you've got a bunker. And make room for me, because I'll be there with you. Because if the sun's not coming up in the east tomorrow, the world's not going to be here, right? You ought to look for the eastern sky and look for Christ to appear. Because this world is dependent upon the sun coming up in the east. We don't mean any sort of doubt or any sort of condition. We're making a statement that suggests quite the contrary. And that's precisely what he's doing. Is there any encouragement of Christ? Of course there is. Is there any comfort from love? Of course there is. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Of course there is. And so forth. Then, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, focus on unity of mind, unity of identity. That unity of mind, therefore, produces joy. The apostle writes to his people, and he says, my joy is dependent upon your unity. Now, we know that's true on a superficial level. I wonder, have you ever imagined what brings joy to God? I assure you it's the same. What pleases God is when his people are one. Read Jesus' prayer in John 17, the so-called high priestly prayer. Jesus is betrayed in John 18. And the last prayer that, Jesus, that, the, that the Scripture records of Jesus praying is this prayer where he prays that God would indeed make God's people one, even as he, Jesus, and God are one. In other words, when the church is one, we reflect our Father when the church is one, we reflect the unity of the Son and the Father. We are a part of this great family, and it brings joy, and it brings comfort. It brings peace. Not because we are the same externally, but because we are the same internally. There is a unity of mind that produces joy and comfort, and it bleeds over. Notice in, again in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The point is, Paul's in prison writing this letter to the Philippians. He's not there physically, but 
he is delighted to hear of their joy and wants to hear of it continuing because that carries even across the distances that separate people. That matters. The reputation of this church, the reputation of the witness of Christ, the reputation of the work of Christ is somewhat dependent upon the unity of the church. If the reputation of the church, the reputation of the people of God is infighting and slander and gossip and backbiting and all the rest of the things that characterize the world, then why would the world want what you're offering? Why would the world want that which you pretend or at least profess is something that they should have? So the unity of the church is of critical importance for your personal joy, for the joy of others who are not a part of our congregation, as well as the world, that they may see that the unity of mind produces joy and comfort is indeed a a witnessing asset this is the nature of our god we stand together we stand as one and it is a a fitting tribute is it not that though we are not the same we reflect one god we stand together shoulder to shoulder arm in arm reflecting this one god so that he is getting the glory, so that he is magnified? What what can accomplish this sort of unity in a world today that is completely fractured? Only God, only the Spirit. If there is an encouragement in Christ, think of that for a moment. What What is the thing that defines us? It is that we are in Christ. If there is any love, comfort of love, there's any bond of love, and of course there is, any participation in the Spirit, if, if, if we have the Holy Spirit together, yes, of course, if there's any affection and sympathy toward one another, genuine, heartfelt sympathy, hurt with people who hurt, grieve with people who grieve, pray with people who are heartbroken, extend compassion to one another, If if this is true of us, then this produces joy and peace and comfort. This changes our lives. You'll note in verse 3 that he indicates the how that occurs. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry pits people against one another, makes them competitors instead of team members. We're on the same team. Anybody who's ever been a part of a team in any sort of athletic contest understands that you can't fracture the team and somehow be better. The team has to work together. Church is no different. Family is no different. The way of humanity is no different. Where we are fractured, we are weaker. And the world wants to see us fracture. This is the agenda of the enemy of God. So do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the witness of Christian people. 
We can serve one another. We can serve people who are not here in such a way as to deflect praise for ourselves, but to magnify them. Why would you care for me this way? Why would you love me this way? Why would you sacrifice for me in this way? Because you have value. This is not about me. This is about you and your need and your burden. It's about your problem. I have problems. I know I have problems. But let's diminish those for a moment and let us serve you. If we defer to others again and again and again and again and again and again, we set ourselves apart as being different from the world. This is the nature of what it means to be Christian. We see others as more important than ourselves. This is not natural. This is not typical. This is not usual. This is not to be expected, and the world does not expect it. So when the world sees it, the world does not know how to process it, which is a good thing because it becomes the soil from which the gospel can go forth and take root. Why do you act like that? Why are you doing that? Why are you serving? Why are you denying self? Why are you not retaliating? Why are you not engaging in rivalry and conceit like the rest of the world? Why are you different? Of course, the answer is Christ. Which brings us to the second paragraph, verse 5. I would simply summarize the apostle's argument here that it is the mind of Christ that Christians should adopt. Not the mind of man, not the mind of yourself, not the mind of your uh, affiliations, whatever they may be, not the mind of your training, not the mind of your biological family, Not the mind of the world, but the mind of Christ. Again, hear these beautiful words, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. See how the paragraphs bridge here. His exhortation in verse 3 is that in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's focus on your need for humility. Now in this next paragraph, verse 8, he identifies Jesus as your supreme example. Be like Jesus. Adopt the mind of Christ. He humbled himself. It's the mind of Christ that Christians should adopt. Therefore, God exalts him and bestows upon him the name above every name. Think of this for a moment. What are the reasons why we won't humble ourselves? Well, we could summarize it with words that are typical. Pride, arrogance, self-righteousness. But the reality is, when you boil it all down, it is the, the assumption that somehow we are better than the person needing our humble service we have more value we have more intellect we have more position we have more power we have more money we have whatever we have more we're more we are more he doesn't have the dignity that we have he doesn't have the strength that we have he doesn't have the the pizzazz that we have he he, he's not worth it so we we will not humble ourselves we don't 
To which then, the apostle says, aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that? Because if you won't humble yourself to serve someone who is beneath you, lower than you, inferior to you, less deserving than you, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that to you? So who is Jesus? Well, that's his point in these verses. Have this mind in yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, that word gives people trouble. There's several words in here that give people trouble. We're not belaboring them too long, but I, I must deal with a couple of them. The word form for us means shape. means shape. I, I, everybody's wearing masks right? So I can't really see their face. But I can recognize your form. So I recognize people now because, not because I, I like their eyes, because I've really never paid a whole lot of attention to eyes, but because I, I see their ears, right? So now I recognize you by your ears. You say, well, I wish you wouldn't look at my ears. Well, I wish you wouldn't look at mine. But that's all I got left when you're covered up in a mask. Or if you're walking way I can recognize your gait or your pace or, you know, whatever. You're wearing a certain shirt. I've seen you wear a thousand times. I mean, <laughs> once or twice. Uh, whatever, you know, and you recognize people. Because form matters. God has given us. We live in a world defined by form. And here the Bible uses the word form, and that is the word for form, but it doesn't mean form. <laughs> it doesn't mean form. It's the same word that Peter uses when he describes Jesus in 1 Peter 1, where he is the exact manifestation, the essence of God. The word here doesn't mean shape, it means essence. Essence. So again, who though he was in the essence of God, he was God. Here again, how the scripture defines these words. It's not unusual for us to find this kind of terminology. Let me show you a couple of examples. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I'll stop there. We could go on. Look in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Bible is not unclear as identifying that Jesus is one with God. He has the exact essence of God. Now, we don't even have a category for this. The reason for that is because he is the only begotten son. Again, that is an idiom 
in the language of the Bible. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the only son as if God doesn't have other sons. That's the way we would use that term. But in this, it means that Jesus is the peculiar, the unique, the genuine, the only begotten. It it doesn't mean that he's the one who is birthed from the Father. Again, we would use that term that way. But it means that he is the unique, the, the, the essential Son of God. Again, back to Philippians 2. His point is that Jesus is God. This is exactly what he means when he exists in the form of God. How does that impact me and you? If Jesus is God and he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of humanity, humanity, Again, this is the gospel message, that God became flesh, that God was born of woman. Here we are approaching Christmas, and we're going to celebrate this truth again and again and again. God became man. God became man. We say that so often, it becomes trivial, it becomes trite, it becomes just something we, we, we don't think much about. But think about it for a moment. God became man. How in the world Not only can that happen, but why in the world would that happen? Why would anyone who is so far above these humans, who have denied him, rebelled against him, caucused together so as to plot against him, and defiled his righteous way amongst themselves, perverted their lives, poisoned his reputation as image bearers of God, Why would God dignify us and send his only begotten son, who is his essence, to take our place on a cross? Why would God do that? Why would Jesus submit to that? Why would Jesus defer in such a way to you, to me? The answer, again, is another strange word we don't have a category for. The scripture says... That verse 7, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. The King James here says he emptied himself. Again, that's a very strange Greek word. It does not occur anywhere else in the Bible. It's the only place. There's no category for comparing it. We don't know what that means by looking to another passage and saying, well, it was used over there like that, so it must help us understand it here. We don't have that advantage. This is the only place this word is used. It means that Jesus emptied himself, that he he became man at the, if you will, and, and did not hold on to his rightful place of at the right hand of the Father. He emptied himself. He denied himself. He submitted himself to the way of God and to the limitations of humanity. That's why he goes on to say he's being born, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God became man. So the next time you want to defend your lack of (coughs) deference to someone else, service for someone else, humility toward other people, the next time you do that, remember this passage of Scripture. 
We, we friends, are Christian people. And we are shaped by the work of our Savior. We have been bought with a price, a precious price, the price of the blood of the very Son of God, who, though he was God, emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of humanity, and even in that humanity, humbled himself to the lowest, if you will, experience of humanity. He allowed himself to be brutalized, humiliated, shamed, and ultimately crucified. To which we must simply ask, what excuse could we possibly offer so as to defend our lack of humility toward one another? Knowing the price paid for us, knowing the work accomplished for us, knowing the life of Christ for us, how can we excuse not seeking to do the same? We can't defend it. We just can't defend it. And yet, it persists. Dear friend, together we must labor. We must, to borrow the phrase in verse 12, we must work. We have to keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working. Which brings me to the third point quickly, verse 12. The mind of Christ then drives us to work hard to serve one another. Notice how he phrases it in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out, that's an imperative, meaning command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, meaning there's an accountability for you working out your salvation. There's a responsibility with fear and trembling. In other words, you're being scrutinized. You're being evaluated. Now, not for the purpose of kicking you out of heaven, not for the purpose of somehow wounding you in some way. But understand that God, we offer this service, we offer this life, we exist as a church under God. We, we bear his name, we bear his image, and now we bear his mandate. This is his business. This is not your business. The church is not your domain, my domain, our playground, our sandbox. We don't have a right to do that, talk like that, think like that, act like that. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Work at it. Work hard at it. Work at your marriage. Work at your family. Work at your job. Work at being a good neighbor. Work at serving one another. Work at forgiving people for their sins even as you yourself have been forgiven. Work at deferring to people. Work at serving people in spite of the fact that they are, by your estimation, somehow less than you. Because the one who died for you is truly greater than you. You would receive from Jesus his deference to you, but you would not then 
extend the same to someone else. You need to go work on that if that's your testimony. If you're not willing to be kind, if you're not willing to be forgiving, if you're not willing to be generous, if you're not willing to be merciful, if you're not willing to be like Christ has been to you, then here again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why has God determined that we would be different? Well, it seems reasonable to God. You say, well, it doesn't seem reasonable to me. Well, guess what, friend? You're not God. It seems reasonable that God would make us different, that he would bring us together from all kinds of places and all kinds of circumstances, and he would throw us all in the same pot, and he would say, now this is the nature of what it means to be made in the image of God. The image of God is not a skin tone. The image of God is not a certain dimension. It's not a certain shape. The image of God is not a sexual tendency or a gender, if you will. The image of God is none of these things. These things that define or, or whatever. The image of God is that all these people are different and yet they bear, they bear the identity that God has given them. God intends that we be one. And that as we are one, and to the degree that we are one, we are strong. And we point as lights in the world. Verse 14, 15. We are pointers to God. And we show the world that is not like this, that is not characterized by unity, that we are one in the Lord. And that God has brought us together. Years ago, I told this story. Uh, it comes back to my mind now. When uh, I can't belabor this story too long, but when, when I was in high school, I, I was uh, not interested in hanging out with people who didn't look like me, talk like me, have my values. I had a very narrow view of who was in and who was out. And so... I came along when people who, who didn't look like me, it was appropriate to judge them. That was the, kind of the crucible of my life, family, even church. Judge people who didn't look like me. Not skin so much, but behavior and hair and clothing, all that. I went to college. Susan and I had dated for a while in high school, and then we broke up. And uh, so during the time that we were broke up, and I was repenting, coming back to Christ in various ways and falling in love with the church and whatever. I befriended a guy in college who had hair basically the middle of his back. That was not a guy that I would have befriended a couple of years earlier. So Susan and I got back together, and I introduced her to my friend. She doesn't remember this, but it stuck with me. I introduced her to my friend, and later she said, uh, that's not the kind of guy that I would expect you to befriend, which is exactly the truth. And I said, well, yeah, but he's a really good guy. really like him. I used to evaluate people superficially. What they said, what they ate, how they lived, how they dressed, how they cut their hair or didn't cut their hair or whatever.
But through the circumstances of my life, God had begun to crush that view. And God continues to work that into my life. And I suspect he is in you. We can't be who God wants us to be if we evaluate people the way the world evaluates people. We have to put up with stuff. Not evil stuff. Just idiosyncratic stuff. We just do. And the reason we do is because our Savior puts up with us. It's really not more complicated than that. It's not more mystical than that. It's not more revolutionary than that. If you've been forgiven, go and forgive. If you've had someone defer to you, go defer to someone else. Pass it along, friend. Pass it along. Haven't you been changed by the gospel? Haven't you been changed by this glorious Christ? Therefore, be changed. Work out your salvation in such a way as to show that you have met the one who can change someone else. Don't act like you haven't been changed. Instead, recognize that your change is from God and that God intends no less from you toward others. This is the nature of what it means to experience the Lord's peace. I will tell you that if you're spending your life welcoming people instead of pushing people away, life's a whole lot more fun. There's a whole lot more peace. There's a whole lot more joy. I want to urge you today. This is the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That we are people who are committed to comfort and to joy and to peace. But those things are not artificial in us. They are indeed byproducts of the true identity that we acknowledge. You don't have to look like me, act like me. Well, morally, I hope we're all on the same page. But you, you, you don't have to. You just don't have to be like me. In fact, it's pretty delightful that you're not. Because privately, I can say, that's pretty silly. But man, it's delightfully silly. I'm thankful that God has brought us together. I'm thankful that church is not a bunch of people like me. I'm thankful that there's a lot of diversity. And it's a sweet thing. It's a righteous thing. It's a godly thing. There is one thing that's all the same for all of us, and that is that we have met the Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, humbled himself, and he came and he died for me. He died for you. And together, we want to extend that comfort to others. I hope today you know his comfort. And if you do not, let us tell you. Give us the chance to introduce you to Jesus. He's changed our lives. And you'll change yours. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for the grace you've extended to us. Thank you for the kindness that you've shown us now. 
I pray, Father, for your continued blessings upon us as we serve you, as we follow you, as we look to you. Give us grace. I thank you for this church, for its witness, for its ongoing commitment to the things of God. Pray, Father, for your blessings upon us. Help us. Help us be faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.